This is the show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business. And I'm going to present you with some breaking controversial news. And the breaking controversial news is that a large majority of knee surgeries on an outpatient basis are actually unnecessary. And to talk about that, our crack team of research staffers have called upon Dr. Ronald Grossmer, uh, who is an expert on the issue. In fact, he's such an expert that he wrote a book called A Patient's Guide to Unnecessary Knee Surgery. And you can find that on Amazon and your favorite bookstores. So, Doc, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here again. All right. So I'm, I'm holding my knees and I'm rubbing them. So talk to me about all this unnecessary surgery. 95%? I, uh, that's what I would say. Based wow. on my review of people coming in uh, who've seen other doctors and had surgery and when I review the records, I can't help but scratch my head and think, this person never needed the surgery. It's really, it's really quite remarkable. And the sad thing is that it's been going on for a long time. I've been in practice over 30 years, and instead of getting better, it's just, it's just getting worse. All right, so let's, let's talk about your credentials and your expertise first. What, 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 is, it, what is your relationship to the, to the knee? Well, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. I'm board certified in that field. And uh, early on in my career, I narrowed my practice within orthopedics to knees and hips. And so um, all my publications deal with knees and hips. And my professional books deal with knees and hips. All right. So how did, how did you stumble upon this revelation? Uh, really, quite early on in my practice, I remember I might have been in practice a few weeks, and I saw a patient in the office, and this was a young, healthy woman, and she'd fallen in the street, and she'd bruised her knee, and uh, she could walk, and she could bend and straighten the knee. She clearly didn't have anything broken, and she really had a, a very simple bruise, nothing more, nothing less. And I ordered some basic treatments, and I said, you know, we'll see you back in 10 days. Uh, if it's all better, let me know. You don't have to come back in. And a few days later, I'm making rounds at the hospital, and I go to the operating room for a case. And who do I see in the holding area of the operating room but that same woman wow. getting ready for surgery? I, I didn't think it would be her knee. I said, what a coincidence. She's got something else. I said, oh, hello, Mrs. Smith. Uh... Oh, sorry to see you here. What brings you here? She goes, well, you know, my knee. I go, your knee? What happened to your knee since I last saw you? So she says, well, you know, you're a young guy. You know, no, no offense. I went to see Dr. So-and-so. He thought we'd better get an MRI. And you know what? Sure enough, the MRI said I had a torn meniscus. And he thought we'd better go in and take a look. And here I am. And I thought, wow. So that's how it works. <laughs> and... You know, from that day on, I got it. You know, any orthopedist can can perform an arthroscopy. All he's got to do is send the patient for an MRI. 95% of the time, the MRI is read as a meniscal tear. We can go over why that is in a moment. And then that MRI report becomes a license to operate because the surgeon shows this to the patient. 
And the patient gasps and says, oh, my God, no wonder my knee hurts. Doc, can you fix this? Bah. And, of course, the answer That's is. That's what the guy's <laughs> waiting to hear. And he'll go, you know, you're in, you're in good shape. You're lucky. This is your lucky day. I happen to have an opening on my schedule in two days. And the patient goes, oh, thank you, doctor. <laughs> and, and the good news, of course, it's an outpatient procedure. It's an outpatient <laughs> procedure. The doctor does the procedure, tells the patient there was a torn cartilage. The patient has no idea whether that's true or not. But since the MRI report said it, the patient has no reason not to believe it. The doctor then sends the patient for physical therapy. And, of course, the patient gets better because they were going to get better anyway. But the, doc, the patient thinks the doctor is a genius and sends all their friends. Uh, it's the perfect white-collar crime. Wow. So, so what, what do most knees upon inspection have some issue, much like I understand that if you look at lungs of urban dwellers, there's going to be some things going on, not necessarily, you yes. know. You know the, the MRI is exquisitely sensitive to the tiniest changes. And if you're a reasonable clinician, as a doctor, you know to separate those little changes that mean nothing from the changes that really potentially signify something. But if you're not that knowledgeable or somewhat unscrupulous, every time you see a little something, you're going to make it sound like it's serious. So imagine the weatherman uh, on a top 10 day of the year. And there's a little puffy white cloud in the sky, harmless. Any weatherman's going to go, beautiful day today. But let's assume that the weatherman were, oh, let's say, paid by the umbrella manufacturers of America. Live team coverage. <laughs> so the meteorologist might say, cloudy with a chance of rain. And then you would call up the weatherman and go, that's ridiculous. How, how could you say cloudy with, partly cloudy with a chance of rain? And what would the meteorologist say? He'd say, wait a second. When I said partly cloudy, I didn't say how partially cloudy. And when I said chance of rain, I didn't say whether it was one in a hundred chance or 99%. I just said chance. And that's what the radiologist does. There'll be a little change in the meniscus. That's normal, like the little white cloud in the sky. And he'll go, or she'll go, tear at the back of the meniscus the cartilage. And then you call up and you go, I've looked at this MRI. I don't see anything. I just see this little thing. And the radiologist will say, I never said it was a big tear. And I certainly never said it could be a source of pain. Right. And I guess people need to find things to cover themselves, you know, legally, I guess. You know. It's not so much that because quite honestly, these cartilage, by the way, I should backtrack and explain what this cartilage is that we're talking about. Yeah, you especially hear, you hear things like on radio commercials about bone on bone. Yeah, and, and yeah, all yeah. This. So yeah. it's very unfortunate, but the same word has two completely different meanings in the world of orthopedics. So you have articular cartilage. That's the white, shiny stuff that covers the end of a bone. Anytime you eat chicken or turkey, you see that white, shiny stuff. Yes. All right, so that's articular cartilage. That's what keeps bones from joints from moving nice and smoothly. And that's why your, your joints don't hurt when you walk or you move your arm because it's got that nice, smooth cartilage, which is eight times smoother than ice. So that's really smooth. Wow. 
And when that wears down, all the way down to bone, like a skating rink in the spring when the ice melts and you start to see the concrete, that's, that's the textbook definition of arthritis. I thought arthritis was more of inflammation. Well, what is hurts both? is the inflammation that goes along with that. Ah. If you have no inflammation, you don't have pain, and that's why you can have arthritis and not necessarily have pain. Oh, so the classic definition of arthritis is the degeneration of the cartilage. Right. The degeneration of the cartilage. I mean, some people, if you want to get really technical, but we're not going to go down that road, differentiate, differentiate between arthrosis and arthritis. So arthrosis would be the wear and tear, and the arthritis, the itis, would be the inflammation. But let's keep things simple. Arthritis is a situation whereby the cartilage covering the bone wears down. And you, that's when you can get the bone on bone. Why does it wear down? Well, it wears down. There are many possible reasons. Um, you can have osteoarthritis. That's the most common type. And it's commonly referred to as wear and tear, although purists will tell you that's not completely true. But to keep things simple, simple that's the arthritis that generally accrues over a period of decades. Okay, More so if you're bow-legged or knock-kneed, more so if you're overweight, more so if you have a very physical job, and so forth. So that's osteoarthritis. You can have um, rheumatoid arthritis. And that's an inflammation of the soft tissues that gradually eat away at the cartilage. Um, you can have infectious arthritis, where you get an infection in the knee and it chews away the cartilage. Wow. You can have traumatic arthritis, where you have a bad fracture, in the knee, which causes the cartilage to break down. So that'd be more like a sports injury kind of thing. Or anybody, you know, yeah. you know, getting hit by a car, falling, you know, a major fall or whatever. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we digress because we were saying there are two different types of cartilage in the knee. So that's one type of cartilage. The other type of cartilage, which is what we're really talking about tonight, is the meniscus. Now, the meniscus is a rubbery shock absorber. It sort of feels like an eraser. And it's shaped like the letter C. And you have two of them in the knee. One on the right, pointing inwards, and one on the inside of the knee, the left side of the knee, pointing the other way. They face each other. Both look like the letter C. And they serve multiple purposes. So again, it's a shock absorber. It helps stabilize the knee. It helps lubricate the knee. Um, and these are the things that can tear. A meniscus over time can tear. It doesn't have much of a blood supply. It feels like an eraser. And as people get older, they start to fray. Just like if you have a shirt that's 20, 30, 40 years old, it's going to be frayed at the sleeves and get thin at the elbows. That's what happens to a meniscus. And that's why nearly everybody's got a little something on the MRI. Now, <clears throat> uh, what do people feel when it's beginning to degenerate, what's the what are the what yeah, is the well, what is the presenting issue? Of the time they feel zippity doo dah, nothing. Okay. I mean, I bet you you get an MRI of my knee and it shows a little something. I'm not feeling anything. It's a little bit like having a cuticle on your fingertip. You know, you wake up one day, you have a cuticle. Huh, how did that happen? Well, by and large, a cuticle is not going to hurt. And so, what these little tears are are really basically cuticles, at least. 99% of meniscal tears. Every now and then, you have a real tear. What I mean by a real tear is meaning something bigger than a cuticle, maybe something like a hangnail. And that can hurt because the meniscus 
has no nerve fibers. It's like a fingernail. So you can clip a meniscus and it won't hurt, just like you can clip your fingernails and it won't hurt. So why would a hangnail hurt? Or if you have a broken fingernail, why does it hurt if a fingernail has no feeling? Well, because it's attached to the nail bed, and the nail bed sure as heck has nerve fibers. So it's the same thing with the meniscus in your knee. It has no pain fibers. You can snip a meniscus, patient won't feel anything. But it's attached to the capsule of the knee. And the capsule of the knee is very sensitive. So when you have a big torn meniscus, like a hangnail, it'll pull and tug on that capsule, and that's the pain that a person will feel. Now, when they have this kind of pain, what kind of pain would they be feeling? Is it a burning pain, a stabbing pain, a throbbing pain? It's usually pain? a very localized pain, meaning usually they can put their finger right where it is, as opposed to arthritis pain or diffuse conditions where the person rubs their entire knee and says, look, my, my, my knee hurts everywhere. When it's a torn meniscus, they usually take one finger and they go, doc, right there <laughs> is where it hurts. And then when you push there, yes, they have pain right in that spot and nowhere else. Um, most of the people, though, most of the time a meniscal tear is asymptomatic. Now, whether the pain is burning, uh, people will describe it in, in different ways, but the most important thing is that it's very localized. And then they'll say it hurts when I plant my foot and I turn right or left, or they'll say it hurts when I'm getting up from a deep uh, chair yeah. or, you know, from kneeling. Now, at what age do you see the peak of the operations in people in, of this 95%? Is it people over uh, 65? Somewhere between the ages of 20 and 85. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the fact is, if a doctor's got it in his or her mindset that he's going to do, say, 10 arthroscopies a week, he will find or she will find an excuse in essentially anybody with knee pain. It doesn't take much. You walk in, there are many offices, thank God, there are also a lot of outstanding doctors who would never do what I'm talking about. But there are any number of offices where you come in with knee pain, you're barely getting an exam. I mean, the doctor may spend 15 seconds with you, may get very cursory x-rays, and that's another topic we can talk about. You can get a lot of information from x-rays. But they'll have you believe that the x-ray really is not good enough. So then they send you for the MRI because they already know what the report's going to say. Right? And then... As we were saying, they're going to say, yeah, in two, in two days, I'll have an opening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And the patient will have an opening too. Two of them, in fact, right in front of their knee. But um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it works. Now, I was starting to talk about the x-rays. Yes. There's, um, I don't know, the word myth is used too liberally, but there is an assumption in the general public that x-rays are really not enough. Uh, and that if the doctor doesn't order an MRI, then they, the patient, are being shortchanged. They'll say, you know, I, you know how much a, a month I pay for my insurance? Sure as heck, I'm getting an MRI. So, but the fact is, if you get a good set of x-rays, and that's become a lost art, you can get a lot of information. And the minute you see that a person has arthritis, you don't even need the MRI anymore. And I'll tell you why in a second. Those x-rays have to be done with the person standing, and you need four different types of x-rays. So if you're old enough to have arthritis, so let's arbitrarily say you're over 45 or 50, you better have four x-rays, two of which were done standing. If you haven't gotten those, 
you've gotten shortchanged. If the doctor says, okay, we're going to get a couple of x-rays and send you for the MRI, you should be smelling a rat. Now, why did I say that if there's arthritis, you can stop right there? Because it's true that the MRI will show you more things, give you more information, but it's not going to give you any more useful information. Let's say you have arthritis. You get an MRI. It's going to show you have a torn meniscus for all the reasons we just mentioned, on top of which you already have wear and tear in the knee, so there's an even greater likelihood that the radiologist is going to find some kind of tear of the meniscus. The arthritis trumps the torn meniscus. Torn meniscus is essentially irrelevant in someone who's got arthritis. So the MRI is irrelevant. And I use the following analogy. Imagine um, that a fireman comes and rushes into a burning house. Does the fireman care if the sofa needs reupholstering? <laughs> no. no. It may be completely true that the sofa needs reupholstering, but the fireman doesn't care. Why? Because the house is burning down. Let's assume there's a little bit of a leaky faucet in the bedroom, you know, in the bathroom there on the second floor. Does the fireman care? No, same reason. So if the fireman could have a test that would tell him ahead of time if the sofa needs reupholstering or whether there's a little leak in a bathroom upstairs, would the fireman make use of that test? No, because that is useless extra information. So the minute you have arthritis in your knee, all that extra information the MRI tells you, gives you, is window dressing. But it does serve the purpose of allowing the orthopedist to recommend an arthroscopy. Gotcha. So we'll hold it right there. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Richard Solomon with Dr. Ronald Grossmer, the author of A Patient's Guide to Unnecessary Knee Surgery. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Jeff Matson, the Dark Star Orchestra, and you're listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. Welcome back. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business. And I have the distinct honor to be with Dr. Ronald Grossmer, who is a fantastic doctor and, and, and a caring physician. And he is the author of A Patient's Guide to Unnecessary Knee Surgery. Uh, you can find that on Amazon and a lot of other great places. Um, before the break, we were talking about uh, this, this great analogy about uh, firefighters yeah. <laughs> and uh, unnecessary uh, things that would go on in a burning building. Uh, so if you have arthritis, what does that tell you as a patient? Well, um, it tells you that uh, your knee has, in a sense, worn out. It's like driving a car where the needle is if not on empty, close to being empty. And it tells you that you are not going to need to go down the, quote, sports medicine path where you would go for a quick little no risk, and I say no risk in parentheses, or quotes rather, no risk arthroscopy. That is not for you if the knee is arthritic. Now, there are exceptions to every rule, but by and large, that's a pretty good rule. And there are any number of studies that have shown that even if you have a torn meniscus, even if you have a torn cartilage, if you also have arthritis, the odds of your feeling better after the arthroscopy for any period of time is really, really low. Not zero, but, but low. 
Well, let's let's talk about something that you were alluding to. No risk, low risk. Let's talk about that. Right. So there's a huge difference between no risk and low risk. And unfortunately, a number of doctors operate under the theory that an arthroscopy is no risk. And therefore, even though in their hearts they know they're recommending an operation that's nearly guaranteed to be useless, they rationalize it by thinking, well, it's not 100% risk of being useless. Maybe there's always a tiny chance that it'll help. In fact, you know, you always have the placebo effect. Some of the patients are going to get better just from that. And number two, they assume that it's no risk because they haven't seen a patient with a complication from an arthroscopy in a long time. But when you figure that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of arthroscopies done a year in America, because people also have shoulder arthroscopies and they have hip arthroscopies, assume there's only a one in a hundred chance of having a complication. Well, one in a hundred when you've got thousands and thousands, that adds up to a lot of people who have some kind of complication. It could be an anesthetic complication. It could be an infection. It could be any number of oddball complications that, that people get. And that's really the risk. I mean, let's assume for a moment that, they, that it were totally risk-free. I would say, fine, listen, if it's totally risk-free and you're not paying for it, go ahead. So what if it's useless? But it's not totally risk-free. It's a little bit of a Russian roulette. Mind you, you know, it's a Russian roulette where the odds are very low of having a complication. But if you're that person, you're going to be upset to find out that you had an arthroscopy you never really needed. My, my brother, who is an attorney and a, a co-host of the show from time to time, has a, a very similar analogy, which is, if, if only one person was killed in New York City in a calendar year, was it a good year? And the answer is it depends on whether you were that yeah. person or their family. Because yeah, right, right. <laughs> for all the other people, it was a great year. And if you were the, the right. one guy, then right. it was a tragic year. Right. So, so I see people in my office who've had an arthroscopy. And sometimes it's not even necessarily a complication. They just haven't gotten any better. And there are a number of conditions around the knee that are painful that will not show up on an MRI. So you have little, if you fall on the ground, you can bruise the little nerves under the skin at the front of your knee. Those little tiny nerves are invisible on an MRI, but they, the skin is very sensitive and that can be very painful. It won't show up on an MRI. You can have tightness of a band that runs down the side of your thigh the iliotibial band. Runners are familiar with that structure. If it's tight, that can cause pain at the knee, but that will not show up on an MRI either. So, um, yeah, you can't totally rely on that MRI. It'll overread tears, and it'll miss a number of painful knee conditions. So let's take this hypothetical. I wasn't fortunate enough to have met you, and I just went on the internet and Googled knee doctor. <laughs> yeah. And I got Dr. Dr. Jones. Right. How, how do I know that Dr. Jones is not going to lead me one way as opposed to maybe a different way? Right. Well, if you're, if you're going on the internet, that's the equivalent of the old yellow pages. 
Right. You know, so you're just going to be attracted to the person with the best website in the same way that you used to be attracted to the person with the biggest ad in the yellow pages. So that you're totally rolling the dice. And by the way, I have a chapter in the book on how to find the right doctor. And by and, by and large, it's really not easy because uh, every no matter which way you go, there's a, there's a chance of going wrong. You might say, well, I'm going to go for a famous doctor. Well, some famous doctors are not necessarily ethical. Or you might go, well, I'm going to go with a young doctor who's, you know, going to be scared of being unethical. No, that doesn't work either. So really the, the best way is to ask another orthopedist. Everybody should have an orthopedic friend, in my opinion. And, uh, I'm just joking there, of course. But <laughs> sometimes if you have a serious problem, it pays, it's the old fashioned second opinion, if you wish. You, but you have to be careful of who's giving you the second opinion, because obviously the second opinion guy may know less than the first guy, or be the same kind of guy. So it's not foolproof either. But, now, are you the only guy that's written a book about unnecessary knee surgery? Well, I think so. Yeah. So, so I basically, so. what people have to do is to yeah. do an internet search for you know doctors who are authors on unnecessary knee surgery, and maybe but, they'll. they'll <laughs> That's true. At least find people who at least put your link up. So very good. It's a good point. But once you're in the doctor's office, there are telltale signs. So if you go to a doctor's office, an orthopedist with knee pain, here are some signs that should make you worried. The doctor spends very little time asking you about how you hurt yourself, where it hurts, when it hurts, what makes the pain worse, what makes the pain better. He or she spends very little time examining your knee. They don't examine for the sensitivity of the skin. They don't put you on your side to see if you have tightness of the iliotibial band. That's, that's a red flag. Uh, number two, if they only send you for two x-rays as opposed to four x-rays, as we were saying, you need four x-rays to get a complete picture, no pun intended. And if you're old enough to have arthritis, two of those x-rays need to be done standing. So if the doctor doesn't order those, you should be suspicious. Red flag. Red flag. If the doctor seems really keen on sending you for an MRI, that's also a red flag because most people with knee pain do not need an MRI. Uh, most people with knee pain have either overuse. They're used to playing one set of tennis and they play two sets of tennis. They're used to running 10 miles. They ran 15 miles. So that's 90% of people with knee pain. Or they've fallen in the street and they've hit their knee on the ground. Or they've been in a fender bender and their knee has hit the dashboard. Uh, that's really 95%, and none of those patients need an MRI. The person who needs an MRI is a person who's had a major twisting injury, like an athletic injury, and the knee swells up immediately. And you think, uh-oh, torn ligament, torn this, torn that. And yeah, the x-ray is not going to show those things. That's a reasonable indication for an immediate MRI. Or if there's been violent trauma and you think there's a fracture and the x-ray is not showing it. And then, okay, that's, but you know, those are rare cases. So if you don't fall into the, that category and the doctor right away says, well, I think you should get an MRI, red flag. Also, if the doctor says, after you've gotten the MRI, you have a torn meniscus, I think we should operate, red flag, because there are a lot of 
ways of making a knee feel better, physical therapy, anti-inflammatory medication, very basic injections, uh, knee supports, just plain old rest, activity modification for a couple of weeks. There are a lot of things that will make knee pain get better. And then there's no need to get the MRI. So, um, so let me run a question by you. Yeah. I used, I used to ski a lot. And used to see people being taken down by stretcher with the ski patrol. And what was interesting is the doctors at the various ski resorts would tell people, ah, you have a torn this and that. And, you know, we're the experts on this because we know what this injury is. And you might as well have the operation now because the people back home where you live, wherever that is, including, you know, New York City, which has the best, you know, doctors overall, um, we, we knew how to do this and we'll get you up and running. And, you know, I saw that um, skiing, that it was sort of like surgery mills um, because, you know, people would be in, in, in fairly significant ski accidents of one kind or another. And I guess they were uh, vulnerable because they were in pain and this and that. And the first person that they saw was a doctor. And, of course, you have to trust uh, the medical advice you're given. But I saw a lot of people when I skied, you know, and I skied for a long time in a lot of different places. And I saw people literally on crutches and you'd be like, hey, what happened? Oh, yeah, I had my knee done yesterday. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like, you didn't go home to do this? Oh, no, no. They said if I, if I went right. home, they, like, a butcher would do it and right. screw me over. <laughs> well, you know, I, it's funny you should say that because I talk about that in my book, in the chapter on ACL injuries. Yes. And I basically say exactly that. You go to the mountain, the mountain doctors say the city doctors don't know what they're talking about. You should quickly do this before the knee gets too swollen. And the city doctors go, wait a second, let the pain quiet down, let the swelling go down, get some physical therapy, rehab the knee so it's nice and strong, and then you can peacefully have your reconstruction. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the advice that you get is not always in the patient's best interest, but what's in the doctor's best interest, which is unfortunate. If you tear your ACL, do you actually need to have surgery? Oh, I can't believe you're asking me that. Uh, people are going to think that we plan this ahead of time and that I ask you what questions to ask me. But no, I have a, a large section in my book about that too. It all depends on how old you are and whether your knee feels unstable when you plant your foot and turn right or left, the old trick knee, and what activities you're interested in participating in. So if you're 20 years old and you love playing basketball, soccer, whatever, you need your ACL and you should have it reconstructed if it's clearly torn. If you are 45 years old and your knee doesn't feel unstable after you've gone to therapy and your favorite pastime is bike riding, no need to have an ACL reconstruction because you need your ACL really for pivoting. It provides stability when you're pivoting and when you are quickly decelerating, like you're running fast and then you, you suddenly stop and change direction. That's when you need your ACL. So if you're not involved in any of those activities and you're of a certain age, uh, why submit yourself to an operation which is it even less of a low-risk procedure than the simple outpatient arthroscopy? I've, I've seen many an ACL tear victim uh, skiing. Um, in fact, one person I do know, 
uh, actually, when we were at the mountain, they said, you need to have the surgery. We'll do it right away. We can get a cadaver piece right into you. And that person said, no, no, I'm going to wait till I go home. And that person never did any reconstruction. They just did uh, a rehabilitation. And they, they ended up not skiing, but... Uh, skiing wasn't really that important as a well, lifelong again, You know, that's where informed consent comes in. Sometimes there's no right or wrong when it comes to whether a person needs surgery and if so, which surgery. You have to tailor the treatment to your customer. And everybody's got different expectations in life. Everybody's got different tolerances for risk uh, and so forth and so on. So you can't go by what the, you know, the person next to you on the bus or at a cocktail party had because they have different they're a different person what what are the risk factors for actually being for, for a tear potential has that for the ACL yes well this is not politically correct but it's been proven a hundred times over and it's now considered fact but being a woman puts you at much greater risk for an ACL tear Age for age, activity for activity. I mean, we're talking three, four, five, six, seven times greater risk. Uh, that starts in, in schools, uh, high school, grade school, um, boys and girls playing soccer. The girls are going to have a much higher rate of ACL tears. And it goes on into the, the upper teen years in the 20s. And there have been many theories as to why. And the jury's still out as to exactly why, but there's no question that it's a fact. It, it would seem to be that um, when women land on their feet, they tend to land, land differently. They tend to land with their, they bring their knees together momentarily. And so there are ACL prevention programs. So women's teams will go through these ACL prevention Programs and there seems to be some success with that. In other words, women who go through these programs have a lower rate of ACL tear. That's fascinating. Um, how much does uh, the kind of sport you do? We only have a, a minute before we have to break. It's amazing how fast this goes. But are, is there any particular sports that seem to induce more ACL tears than others? Uh, yeah, the jumping and twisting. So volleyball, basketball. Um, football, anything where the foot is planted and the person suddenly pivots. Although to make things more confusing, they are so-called non-contact ACL tears. And it's very bizarre to watch on TV. You'll see somebody dribbling a basketball down a court and you'll see their knee buckle and they fall to the ground and there's nobody close to them. So there are still some mysteries. Was that because it was just hanging by a thread and then it just... No, no, no. The, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You know, they, they have a 90% tear and then it, that last 10% just went. But these athletes usually have no previous knee injury and it's just out of, kind of an out of the blue. Um, one day we'll find out exactly why and it suddenly won't be, quote, out of the blue, but... For now, it certainly seems weird when somebody's dribbling a soccer ball or a basketball and suddenly, without anybody near them, they fall to their ground and clutching their knee. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. This is Richard Solomon with Dr. Ronald Grossimer, the author of A Patient's Guide to Unnecessary Knee Surgery. Uh, If you ever want to get in touch 
uh, with any of the topics on the show, send us an email and we'll be glad to forward them. We'll be right back. Keep it locked here. Hi, this is Rory Cosgrove, and you're listening to Rich Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. All right, Richard Solomon, welcome back. Thank you for listening to Taking Care of Business. You can catch us on YouTube and a lot of other uh, great channels out there in the world of media. Um, we are with Dr. Ronald Grossimer, and he is a fantastic uh, friend of the show. He is a great doctor, and he is also, most importantly to the listening audience, the author of A Patient's Guide to Unnecessary Knee Surgery. So for all those people out there who are rubbing their knees right now, going, oh, yeah, yeah, um, and you're headed maybe off to a doctor's office or an urgent care <laughs> or an ER, maybe you want to just pull over, put on your in your smartphone, go to you know Amazon.com and get like the book downloaded and start, start reading uh, because it may have a fundamental uh, change in your perspective. So as we're continuing in our journey in understanding knee injury, knee injury pain, arthritis, cartilage, bone on bone, uh, let's digress now to a question that I have, which is you, you see a lot of knee replacements out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the story with that? Uh, you, you see that in, in some, I, I've seen it in very elderly people. Uh, I've seen it in people. Now, I, I was always told that you're, the, the, the replacement knee, the, you know, the bionic knee, is good for 10 years. So I always wonder when they give somebody who's like 60-ish or whatever, a knee replacement. And I'm like, hmm, what are they going to do in, in a lot of years when they need to replace it maybe two, two more times? Right. So first, uh, let's go over some definitions because knee replacement sounds like the knee is taken out. Uh, after all, when you have a hip replacement, the ball of your hip is taken out. Uh, when you have a knee replacement, the knee is not taken out. It's the equivalent of having a cap put on a tooth. So the ends of the bones are removed and replaced with metal on one side and plastic on the other side. But again, imagine your fist and imagine shaving the, the edge, you know, the ends of your fist on all sides and then putting a big piece of metal over your fist. So you haven't removed the fist. You've recovered it. You've resurfaced it. And that's a knee replacement. So, with that, um, today's knee replacements will last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So the, the statistic that a knee replacement is good for 10 years was based on the knee replacements from the 1970s. So today's knee replacements last for decades. Okay, that's, that's good news. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you go, if you use an implant that's got a known track record, and we can discuss as a sidebar whether you should go for a knee replacement that just came out, but let's assume you go with a knee replacement with a track record, and you go to an orthopedist whose specialty is joint replacements, um, then that knee replacement should last you, again, depending on how heavy you are, how active you are, 25, 35 years and going. Now, if you are extremely obese and you do a lot of, and you play basketball on your knee replacement, well, guess what? It's going to, the plastic's going to wear out. Something's going to wear out. But let's assume your weight is roughly where it should be 
and you're involved with activities that do not involve a lot of jumping and twisting, say you just like to go hiking and biking and playing golf and, you know, some skiing on, you know, going on double black diamonds and mogul smashing, your knee replacement can, can last indefinitely. So if you're in your 60s, I tell patients that knee replacement is going to last your lifetime. Statistically, I mean, of course, there are always exceptions, but statistically, you can count on it lasting your lifetime. Just a little WD-40 once in a while, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. I mean, the technology is, has really become quite good. Uh, and if you look at knee replacements, there are many different models out there, like just the way they're different cars. All these knee replacements kind of look the same now. Uh, in the 1970s, they were wildly different. And then little by little, it became clear what design seemed to last, and all the other models have gradually come to look like that. What is the metal made out of? It's made out of cobalt chrome, and the plastic is ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene. Aren't you glad you asked? No, it's important. Now, how does the body deal with that? Does it look at it as a foreign object, well, or it doesn't? I, you know, one of my favorite topics and that was my major in college, uh, is biomaterials. So it's very hard to find a material that will not be affected by the body because the body is salt. And you know how corrosive salt is. So you have to put a product, whether it's metal or plastic, that will not be corroded by the human body. But at the same time, you don't want it to cause any ill effects on the human body. So the list of materials that are tolerated by the human body is really very small. Um, because, for example, one of the original materials was Teflon in the knee because it's very smooth, the whole bit. Um, but Teflon elicited a tremendous reaction in a person's joint. So that was out. Um, and it took a while, uh, and John Charnley in England found ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene. That's still what we use today. It lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts and doesn't cause any untoward reaction by and large. I'm making sweeping generalizations here. So in, in terms of the unnecessary knee surgery issue, where does the knee replacement fall within that spectrum? So, Whereas people will, without thinking twice, sign up for the small arthroscopy, people aren't so quick to sign up for the knee replacement. And so with the knee replacement, it's a slightly different issue. People have the knee replacement much sooner than they need it. Now, you could argue if they're going to need it eventually, what's the big deal? And that's true. You know, if you have a discussion with the patient and you say, I have ways of pushing that knee replacement off for three years, whereas most people say, yeah, please, that's great. You do occasionally have somebody who says, you know, if three years from now I'm going to need a knee replacement, please, let's just do it now. And again, that's informed consent. That's fine. But the fact is, when you have arthritis, the pain goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down. And if you catch somebody in the office when their pain is bad, they'll sign anything. But it's your job as a doctor to point out to them that, wait a second, you've had a flare-up. I'm going to give you this medication or I'm going to give you this injection, and it's going to quiet down. Now, it's not going to cure the problem because the pain's going to come back in three months. 
But at that point, I can do something else that will buy you another three months. So now you'll be six months down the road. Now, at which point, if your pain flares up, I can do what I did for you initially. And you can tide people along that way for a long time. There's no reason to immediately have knee replacement the day the doctor shows it to you on the x-ray. What does knee replacement actually do for the patient? Um, well, I, I understand it's recovering, but what does it do on a functional basis? Well, it lets you, it's designed to let you carry out activities of daily living. I mean, when pe people who have a knee, by the time somebody has a knee replacement, I'm talking about the typical person, they have trouble going to the grocery store. They have trouble getting off the toilet. They have trouble playing with their grandchildren. They have trouble getting on a bicycle. And so a knee replacement lets you do these things. Now, when you have a 40-year-old, their expectations are that they're going to be able to play singles tennis and go running. And that's where it, it, it's a longer discussion with the patient. Say, listen, you know, yes, you can do those things, but then your knee's going to wear out. You remember Bo Jackson? Yes, Bo knows. <laughs> right, Bo knows. Well, Bo was the first professional athlete to play baseball on a hip replacement. But guess what? It probably wore out a little wore, bit faster. Yeah, yeah, it had it redone like in no time. So in, the big headlines was Bo Jackson, professional baseball player with a hip replacement. And then a few years later, in tiny little print, <laughs> you know, whoops, now he needs to have it redone. So, um, but yeah, the, the, the mere fact that you can go from being crippled. I mean, in the old days, if you had knee arthritis, you were condemned to crutches in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. So the fact that you can ditch the wheelchair and ditch the crutches and ditch the cane and go to the grocery store and go hiking and go cycling, it's still fairly miraculous. How could you head off the process? The arthritis? Yeah. All right, go back in time and pick the right parents so that you have the, the right DNA. Uh, make sure you're not bow-legged or knock-kneed. No, I'm kidding, because obviously you have no choice over that. The one thing you can control is your weight. Okay. So it's been shown in any number of articles that the risk of arthritis in the knee is greatly increased if you're overweight. And, of course, the more overweight you are, the, the greater the risk. When you walk down the street, your knee sees three times your body weight. So if you weigh 100 pounds, your knee sees a force of 300 pounds. And when you're going upstairs, getting up out of a chair, the knee sees five times your body weight. Right. So let's assume that you are 50 pounds overweight. When you're walking down the street, every time you take a step, your knee sees an extra 150 pounds. And every time you're going up and down stairs or getting up a toilet or getting up from a seat, your niece sees an extra 250 pounds. So imagine that over day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Yeah, your knee's going to wear out. So your weight is really the single greatest thing you can do to um, avoid knee arthritis. To what extent do, do your arches come into play? Yeah. Well, the knee is very obviously between your feet and your hip, um, and also um, between your feet and your lower back. And so everything is 
connected, the old shin-bone, thigh-bone thing. And if you are very flat-footed, it twists your knee inwards. And that can put very abnormal stresses across the knee. And so if I see somebody with knee pain and they're very flat-footed, I would recommend that they get some comfortable arch supports. I say comfortable because a lot of people get arch supports. They're not comfortable and then they never wear them. So you need, you need good arch supports. Um, if you have very high arches, which is less common but also can happen, that also can put some funky stresses across the knee. And again, those patients can benefit from uh, arch supports. But you have the same problem as you have with orthopedists who want to do arthroscopies on everybody. You will have foot specialists, podiatrists, orthopedists specializing in the foot who want to order arch supports on everybody. And that's a mistake too. So let me be clear. I'm recommending arch supports when the foot mechanics are very clearly off, not the everyday person who's got maybe a very slight flat foot or very slight high arches. I can tell you that in the ski industry, um, boot inserts are heavily sold by boot fitters. Totally. You know, and they explain, you know, the, the mechanics of the foot and you have to lift it up and then and, and yeah. moves the knee and all the other well, stuff. Well, if you're yeah. very flat-footed, you might be putting too much pressure on the you know, inside edge of your ski. And maybe there's some truth to that. Now, how, to what extent it's relevant to your skiing, that's another story. No, but it's, it's interesting because um, I noticed a trend in the ski stores that over time you'd see these standing you know, uh, I don't know what you call it. You'd stand them and you'd stand in it and it'd be like, you know, place where, you know, the outline of your foot and yeah, that's where the pressure distribution, right. That's where the boot fitters would come in and, you know, they would either tilt the, the angle of the platform to show you certain things, but ultimately it was, it was sort of a whiz bang thing to demonstrate to you the need to purchase um, a specialized orthotics as inserts for your boots to make your boots fit better and to give you a better skiing experience. Yeah. Well, like you, I I like to ski and I've always skied. And the fact is you try, you have a pair of boots, you ski reasonably okay, there's no reason to start to get into any of that stuff. Now, if your feet are killing you or something like that, then, of course, you have to start looking at some of these things. So in the few minutes that we have left, we're going to do a lightning round. What are the other things that patients really need to know about their knees, the maintenance of their knees uh, that we didn't really cover in this very fast hour of radio? Right. I think we hit the, the big points, and maybe it's worth recapitulating, especially if some of your listeners haven't been here from the beginning. And uh, you okay with that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the first thing is to realize that most people don't need an MRI. So unless you've had a major twisting injury, you're an athlete, say, and you had a bad accident, uh, you probably don't need an MRI. That's one. Number two, you should get a good set of x-rays before you even think of an MRI. And a good set of x-rays means four x-rays, two of which should be done standing if you're over the age of 45 or so. Then you should be aware that essentially every MRI report will say torn meniscus, torn cartilage, and you shouldn't get excited about that because most of those tears are like cuticles at the tip of a finger and don't cause pain. So you should be very leery of some 
doctor who tells you you need arthroscopy because the MRI says there's a torn meniscus. It takes a lot more than that to require surgery. Um, and there are a lot of ways of making knee pain go away other than, other than surgery, and the doctor should be discussing those things with you. The MRI is one of the greatest tools ever. It can pick up every, any little thing, but it'll pick up nearly too many things. Things are not relevant. And there are things that can be very painful in the knee that will not show up on an MRI. So those are the key take-home points. All right. Now, you also do hips? Yes. So in, in one minute or so, maybe we have to have you come back and do a hip show. <laughs> sure. Well, the hip is similar. To, well, there are not as many things that can go wrong in the hip, but the hip has what's called a labrum, which means a lip that goes around the bone. And if you get an MRI of your hip, it'll say torn labrum. And same thing. Orthopedists who like to do hip arthroscopies will point to that MRI and say, oh, just like in the shoulder, if you get an MRI, it's going to say you have a partial tear of your rotator cuff. And if you get an MRI of your lumbar spine, it's going to say you have a bulge. Because everybody's, everybody's got it. Wow. So you've been incredible, generous with your time, a wealth of information. Let me just in the last minute uh, just repeat that. The book is called A Patient's Guide to Unnecessary Knee Surgery. It's at all of the great uh, book venues, including uh, and, but not limited to Amazon. And uh, we were with Dr. Ronald Grelsimer. And I can't thank you enough for being with us and sharing your uh, world experience, your expertise, and your incredible honesty about what, what patients need to know because good information will take good care of them. Yeah, well, it's been fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, well, And we'll have you back to do some hips. All right. All right. So with that, that, that kind of takes care of it for this week. Be careful out there. And I guess based upon this show, stretch and drink water before you do sports. There you go. <laughs> all right. We'll see you all in a week. Thank you Thank for you. listening.